Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is the Transmitter Radio Hour from XMTR.FM, a space dedicated to sonic storytelling, original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I've been scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. This next hour is dedicated to Earlid, an online museum made for radio art. I'm in conversation with sound artist Joan Schumann, the founder and curator of Earlid. She has selected a number of works for us to listen to under the theme Hubris and Humility. I'll let Joan give us some more context. I started Earlid just about nine years ago. What I w- was trying to do is that I wanted to present sound artists in a museum-like setting, but do it entirely online. The idea originally was to have about four exhibits every year, and I kind of stuck to that. And by exhibits, what I mean is I would invite, say, anywhere from one to four people whose work was addressing a theme that I was thinking about. And these themes would range anywhere from the current theme that we're going to be talking about today is hubris and humility. And other themes I've had are what is not a map, a theme about skin, a theme about dreams. All of it is in sound. So I would say the work that I tend to select and curate is pretty heavily narrative and therefore it fits quite well on the radio. As with any museum, you walk in and there's a curator's introduction, and so I'll contextualize uh, with a short bit of writing and very often have the artists themselves do some writing, which I did in the Hubris Humility exhibit, which ran summer of 2020. It's been a compelling and interesting approach to engaging with sound artists. So that, in a nutshell, is what Earlid is, I started it in the hopes of creating kind of a far-flung international community. I'm constantly learning about people working in sound in really quite different ways. I've been making mostly radio art, sound art, since the early 1990s. And I also teach and guide new makers in sound through online courses at the New School in New York, even though I live in California. Joan, this might be a difficult question to answer. For you, what is sound art? Um, Sound art really for me is about story. I think so much happens when people start to speak and they have an idea and they have a story that they want to tell. And then the sonic artistry that happens is what expresses that story. So I'm much less interested in a linear story, beginning, middle, end. And I 
absolutely love sound, the material and the texture of sound. I think that sound art can be very character driven just by the sound itself. And so you can get, you know, verite sound that just sparks ideas and images and feelings in particular. I am speaking much more subjectively to answer this, I'm realizing. And so I think sound art is whatever anybody thinks it is, but sound art is actually not radio art. And I think that there's quite a distinction because radio art is imagining an audience maybe of one, but in earlier eras, it would be of many people gathered around. And I think there's something very unique and special about the radio, even, you know, if so many of our radio experiences now are online streamed broadcast in the podcasting sphere, I still call it radio. (laughs) And I know it's not, it's not terrestrial radio, but some element of our experience should be that we can step in in the middle and be pulled in. Whereas very often sound art, it's kind of spatial. You have to walk into a space and it's immersive. And while that's an amazing experience, it's you and your body and the space rather than you and your body and your ears. I've got lots of questions, but I think what would be great is for us to start listening to some of the pieces that you've selected. Mira Al-Rahim now goes by Basel. The context is that Basel is um, of both Iraqi and Lebanese descent and left the Middle East and came to London as a child in the 1990s, early 2000s. And uh, I believe in London when the U.S. retaliated and bombed Iraq in the first of many inundations into that country militarily. So Basel is making this kind of eulogy. Uh, I feel like it's more of an homage to the, at that point, 15-year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. I've shared it with students, and one student described that it felt like a bombing. So I would hold that in mind. We're going to listen to, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Imagine a rubber ball. Imagine a rubber ball bouncing. Now, the first time the ball hits the ground is the incident. The bouncing that follows is just the echo, momentum. And I'm able to keep the momentum going for a little bit longer, that's all. Just long enough. Thing as you get that kind of sinking feeling. Time went on. I'll never forget the tip that there was crates buried, you know, hidden in the Euphrates River safe. Maybe these are them.
frogmen and there's nothing there. And so, uh, I felt terrible about it. And uh, uh, on the other hand, did point out that Saddam Hussein was very dangerous, that he had the capacity to make weapons, that, uh, and I'm convinced that if he were in power today, the world would be a lot worse off. I wish we'd have found weapons of mass destruction. But I think somebody's going to look back someday and say, thank goodness the United States believed in the universality of freedom and liberated 25 million people and gave the Iraqis a chance to have their own free, uh, free society.
1245 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Doppler radar indicated thunderstorms producing heavy rain across the Warren area. One to three inches of rain have already fallen. Flash flooding is expected to begin shortly. أيوا إذعاني يجيء بسطوه نحو الوجود هذا الوجود فاقبا طريقه نحو العدم مغلا في التيهتي يحسبه الزمآن قبل ينكشف السراب أي إذعان قبل أن يلجل دجا يجيء بسطوه يومد الحوم بالعبث والفناء أي سر ينضوي فيما تبقى من زمان تنجلي عنه الغشاوة حين ينقشع الغمام Speechless humility of a creature, warming its the way through the void in which no, which man, could no man could lay claim, but only enter and become lost and become lost among a torrent blooming with laughter, signaling its birth. Which must be received with indifference. Which must be received with indifference. Our, Our blazing end nullifies, nullifies in silence. silence. What dint what in the secret heliotropes past? Residues whose, whose penumbra cannot, cannot last as you burn away the noon of the eye to the ground and start, and start violently in the direction, in the direction of the other ledge. These syllables offer a title to the words so close it burns with certainty that this is the moment in which the past engorges its own secret totality with ruptures. I've listened to that piece 
many times and I hear different things and nuances, but when you hear it for the first time, it really is an assault. And I think it's intentionally inviting the listener to feel the visceral experience of what a hubristic act war is. In the end, it's human beings, one with the power and one without the power. <laughs> and I think that pretty much sums up uh, all three pieces that we're listening to from that exhibit, Hubris and Humility. Where in Basil al-Rahim's piece is there humility, one might ask. And I think it comes kind of at the end with, to me, what feels like a prayer. And then kind of in a circular way, it comes back to this echo of a bouncing ball. And I think al-Rahim is using this structure to kind of say war is circular. We're always going to be facing these atrocious actions. Something interesting that um, that the maker wrote to accompany the piece is that the past is not at all petrified or an inert thing, but a moving, breathing, sentient force which refuses to be relegated to the dust heaps of memory. This is all always ongoing, and yeah. um, I'm offering you a slice of it, no matter how difficult it is to listen to and to experience. I think it's always interesting to think about the past and the present being so intertwined and you can't think about one without the other. Absolutely. Shall we listen to the next piece, which is actually something that you've made? Did you want to introduce it? Sure. So realize that there are three pieces on the ear lid exhibit, but you and I decided to intersperse a little bit and I went looking for work of mine that somewhat addresses this idea of hubris and I came up with quite a few, mm -hmm. <laughs> which means that this is a theme that I tend to explore in my own work. And this was a very short piece. This is going to be kind of a palate cleanser, if you will. It was part of a, a short documentary competition that the Third Coast International Audio Festival used to invite people. What they would do is offer a little bit of constraint. For this one, the constraints were that you had to have a voice of a stranger and um, you needed to use two of five pieces of printed ephemera, um, these really old books that they would upload on their website and you could look at them and kind of get a feel for these old books. The two books that I selected for my submission were Trees as Good Citizens, which was written in 1922, and a 1908 book, uh, Control of the Body and Mind. And each of them seemed to address kind of a metaphor about resilience, I would say, in the body and in the nerves. And so I called this cicatrix, which means uh, scar in French. Mm -hmm. And I had received some sound from a colleague who had gone to Beirut and was gathering tape of cluster bomb victims. And so she just said, here, have this tape. And I held on to it for several years. And then it seemed to call forth into this little pastel, if you will, of a piece. What happened was not regenerative, like nerves your life has been changed. Your beautiful scar is a map across your shaved head. You lift your scarf with the floral design. 
You were squatting in the space beneath your house, flattening tobacco leaves when it hit. You were preparing the leaves for bailing. You would sell them that afternoon. Like nerves, your life has been changed. The bomb landed on your house, no, next to your house, no, in your village of Yomor, which is near the town of Nabatea, somewhere, I don't know, I don't have a map, somewhere near the rebel stronghold. I can't fathom the detonation you describe. It's deafening, splintering, reverberance. I have to put my hands over my ears now. You invite the visitors into your home. You insist they crawl below the house to see the wasted harvest. You show them how the tobacco leaves have been spoiled. I smell the mold. When one suffers, the other suffers too. The nerves and the muscles, the mind and the body, the branches and the trunk. You remove your headscarf in one swift gesture. Your fingertips are blackened by the tobacco leaves. The translators dive in with skill from your language to French to my language. Cicatrix, cicatrix, that much I can understand in French. A crescent-shaped scar sears your head. You point to the back of your skull, but won't touch it with your sooty hands. Your thick white hair was shaved for the stitches. Those black threads draw a map. The patterns on your shirt, your pants, that scarf, clash with one another. The gray, stubbly hair is growing back. You sit with one leg stretched out and one heel tucked under you while you speak. You insist on tea. The call to prayer sings like a dirge. You continue bailing the leaves. You'll sell them at market tomorrow. What happened was not regenerative. This might be a bit of a side note, but from listening to your work, I often wonder whether you write to the sound or you write and then you illustrate what you write with sound? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a perfect question because I think what happens is many things happen <laughs> in sync and simultaneously. And sometimes I start to write and because this piece had constraints already and I had the sound already and that fulfilled the constraint of the voice of a stranger, I think the person who collected the sound also gave me a, a snapshot. And so I had this image. And as I was listening to it just now, I was thinking, did I make that up? Did I write that? Did I have poetic license? I honestly can't remember. I think that I just imagined this woman's experience through the sound and through all the translation and through the picture that I had of her, the physical picture. So in this instance, I would say I had the sound first and then the constraints and then Believe it or not, it took me about a month to write that and get it to the point where it was so concise that I didn't want to shave off anymore. So yeah, a, a more recent piece I think that you've aired called, of mine called Ghost Wolf, um, I definitely wrote that first. 
but I had hours and hours and hours of a dog barking. My neighbor's dog was barking and it was just driving me bananas. Um, so I just kept recording it um, <laughs> like a little homeopathic remedy. You know, if I take enough in, it won't drive me too over the edge. So it happens in different ways for me. Uh, sometimes it starts with a dream. It's rare that I write and then go, oh, what kind of sound should I put to that? It's usually kind of a synergy of it happening, even maybe unconsciously. Do you want to tell me a bit about this next piece? So Mira Asher, another Mira, spelled a little differently, is a radio artist, sound artist based in Israel. And she created a piece called Still Sleeping. This is a piece she made in 2016. And what's interesting to me about this work is that she was originally invited to do some kind of art project in the forest where in 2014, a horrendous hubristic act of three Israelis burned a Palestinian boy alive. How do you handle work like that, particularly as she describes herself as a member of the colonialist realm of her country? So she straddles many perspectives, and this one is as a mother. I think we could just dive in and listen, and, and yeah. with that kind of background, get a sense of the piece. Soundscape.
right-wing neighborhoods. Car stops by. A man with a big head talking. Is everything okay? I stand where the boy was set on fire. The man must know where I stand. I stand in the sound fear of all mothers. I say, who are you? Man says, we're watching over you. Are you okay? Yes. Yes. See the small stones on the ground. They set the boy on fire. Her boy, my boy, your boy, our boy. Who the hell sets the young boy on fire? They scum. Soundproof chamber among soaring mountains. My children are sound asleep under the stars. Sea drained. I sit still by the stairs to the chamber. My head surrenders to visions of horror. Abduction. Someone's descending the mountain behind, coming here, lifting my daughter, running away. She cries, Ima, 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 my eyelids start drooping, I fall asleep, not knowing, Ima, what will my eyes encounter tomorrow, Ima, will they all be here, what if one will be missing, Taken to the mountains to a temporary base camp, tortured, set on fire, a liar. Soundproof skull, chamber of grey matter, blasting, shrinking. Push it, push it, push it all to the back of my head. Good morning. Good morning, my children. You're here. Still sleeping. Still alive. Lucia, did you hear that heartbeat at the end? I know. It's incredible. And you can't help but sink to it. I guess that's the power of sound, isn't it? It's um, it's super powerful. It's so much of a quiet piece compared to um, Basil al-Rahim's that we heard, or even, you know, the chaos of people trying to translate across three languages. That in that quietness, like you said, you, you can't help but sink into it. It's just the voice of one person and a little bit of 
very powerful, quiet, in some cases, sound. And I think that that tells an enormous story. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, we can be pulled into that from eight years ago, 2016, to present day. And But I think that that piece has a gesture of humility when we hear the the small child briefly speaking. And I think it was an interesting decision to put that sound in there when, you know, it's in contrast to everything else. Also an extant bit of media um, in the same way that Basil Al-Rahim's piece has some mediated sound, which just invites in a layer of listening. I guess it's a very effective way to contextualize what you're listening to as well, because you're immediately in reality. Right. Um, I wrote in the introduction to that piece, um, quoted the poet and essayist Mary Oliver, who says, evil is one part of our beautiful world. And like Oliver, sound artist Mira Asher, is not blinkered. She is trekking out to the forest and the burned boy's ashes. It seems she too feels the almost muscular agony of impotence before it. And I think that braiding the words of a poet with the words of someone whose children are sleeping and alive, going out to this forested space where a mother's son was uh, burned alive raises so many questions to the point where Mira Asher questions her own ability or purposiveness of being a witness, basically, and her own privilege in uh, her position as an Israeli. So there's so many layers in this rather short, rather quiet piece. <laughs> mm. Another thing she does to draw us in as a listener is this quiet voice that isn't whispering because immediately whispering has a different sound to it but it's what you would do when you're trying to speak quietly without whispering which creates this very kind of intimate sound absolutely I hadn't thought about whisper versus just a quiet intimate close to the ear voice and the tenor of her voice being so low pitch by comparison to some of these other sounds. So this next one you mentioned, this was the kind of catalyst for this theme. So this piece called Dog Woman, and it has a subtitle, An Interview, was um, put together in 2020 by a creative writing poet, writer, student in the graduate program where I teach. So she workshopped that piece across several months with me and her student cohorts. And so being adjacent to the process is as grueling, I think, in some ways as making the work, the decisions that you have to make. You sort of have to step away from it and say, here's some feedback. And so by the time she finished the piece, I felt like I had it in my pores. There's two voices in the piece. There's the poet reading her poem and there's the poet being interviewed. And her poem itself is, is titled Dog Woman. And so Evangeline Riddiford Graham, who made the piece, is several stages removed from this particular sexual assault that we don't really know what it is other than the reference to it. And the poet is actually kind of distancing by having written a poem and taken metaphor and poetic license to her own words, and then to be interviewed about the poem. 
there's a lot going on in this piece and you can get pulled into the visceral details of sexual assault and the hubristic, not only the action, but the kind of really awful voicing of the man who's doing the perpetrating. And that is probably what will turn off a, a listener. And I suggest that you plow through and listen to that to hear what else is going on and the bravery of both the poet who wrote the piece and was interviewed and Evangeline Ritterford Graham, who compiled and composed really all of the voices. Are you, are you a good girl? How does a good girl behave? I've never been a person who cried when a dog died in a movie. I've always felt really bad about it. <laughs> are you a good girl? Are you, are you a good girl? How does a good girl behave? It is just in culture that women are related to dogs. I mean, like man's best friend, the word bitch, right? You can go your whole life not thinking about it, and then one day you're like, why? Headphones man comes to meet me in the middle of the woods again. He asks me, are you, are you a good girl? Tell me how bad you've been, baby. Speculum me wide open, baby, breezy, all inside breezy, all whipped cool over frosted liver and stomach spun heart, right out looking good for you drip just the way you like it. Headphones man comes to meet me in the middle of the woods again. He asks me, are you, are you a good girl? How does a good girl behave? Dick is steak sizzling wet across the room, mouth foaming, tail wagging. He comes behind, slides the transformation in dry. Tell me how bad you've been, baby. What he really wants to know is how tight my bat is. Always pink, always little, always helpless is a good look on you as long as I get to come on it, he says. He says, he says so much, it's hard to keep track. Only hear good and girl. I am neither, but keep the fantasy alive. Little girl, little girl, little blood, trickling little stream, lapping up the leftover me juice. This was obviously really hard for me to write. Like, it's not my voice. It's not mine. It's like something I'm like filtering through me. I think of Dog Woman as a, like a more primitive version of the self. Like I see her on her knees and hands all the time, very dirty. 
And I think that she's not she's not used to wearing clothes. So I always like imagine that she's wearing this like uh, like an oversized shirt that she's a little like, what? <laughs> <laughs> She hasn't been able to take a shower, so she has to, like, wear her, like, history around with her. He comes behind, mouth foaming, tail wagging. How does a good girl behave? Are you, I think are it's you important for her to make sounds, like growling. How does a good girl behave? <laughs> She's colorblind, like dogs are, and she has no sense of time, like animals don't. For her, like all these things are happening on the same plane. Headphones man comes to meet me in the middle of the woods again. Mouth foaming, tail wagging, mouth foaming, mouth foaming, tail wagging. Keep track. Only hear good and girl. How does a good girl behave? You know, like dogs dig the same holes, and like dogs do the same thing every morning. They watch the same window. Like they're thriving on this, like this, like need for like repetition. How does a good girl behave? She's like returning to the same thing over and over again, and it's ha- it's happening to her. It's not like it's not something she's remembering. It's happening to her. He comes behind, slides the transformation in dry, mouth foaming, mouth tail foaming, wagging, tail wagging, tail wagging. Little girl. He girl, comes little behind, girl, slides little the blood, transformation in little dry, blood, little blood, little blood, trickling, little stream. You know, these aren't isolated events. She's experiencing sexual trauma, right? Like, period. That's what's happening to her. You know, when you're a victim, you learn to be both a victim and a perpetrator. The, like, internalized misogyny in this poem, I'm inflicting it on her. And she's inflicting it on me. you're not actively aware when you're like repressing something that's happening to you and like you think about like a trauma or something and oftentimes it can be really fuzzy any of these like really particular moments that you remember um yeah it's similar for her for dog woman i guess it's the same as like digging a hole or like itching the same spot over and over again. It's essential for her to be some sort of dog. I operate in a, like a compartmentalized fashion a lot of the time. There's this sort of break in myself You know, I understand. I get it. I know where it comes from. Dogwoman has helped me, uh, like, journey through that. 
even like the grosser parts like the uglier parts it's like okay yeah like it's a little out of me it's like fixing a leak you know you're like okay <laughs> and then you're just moving forward doing what it takes I think something that's very interesting about this approach to telling a story in sound are these layers, right? And even the poet has layers. When I try to share this with students, I want them to understand that it's not the maker of the piece who has experienced the victimization, but in the way that she presents the work, I think she says here, we're all victims and we're all perpetrators. I just hear Evangeline Ritterford Graham, who is the maker of the piece, she wants us to reflect on the element of kind of being an outsider, but also inside. There's like the pulse of the producer, the panting, the ears pricked, the whole sense of both woman and dog in the piece is her relationship of sound to spoken elements. When I was listening, I kind of forgot that it was an interview with the poet and the producer's voice became her voice, if you see what I mean. So there was a, a kind of confusion as to who was who. And in a way, the way that Evangeline produced this, it's like she is almost becoming part of the story. Yeah, no, and I think that's well taken because... She doesn't call the piece Dog Woman. The poem is called Dog Woman. She calls the piece Dog Woman an interview. And I think that's enough of a choice to say Dog Woman is being interviewed. And who is Dog Woman? Dog Woman is both in and out of the poem. Dog Woman is the poet. And Dog Woman is the persona of the poet that is trying to deal with this experience. This, I'm really pleased that we don't get kind of the first person narrative version of it. We get the poetic version and there's a distancing there as well. And as someone myself who will write and take a lot of poetic license, it's a very comforting space to be in because you don't have to actually be your full self. You can try on personas, you can try on points of view. And I think that's what this piece is doing. There was a line that jumped out for me. It was actually part of the interview rather than the poem was when she said that she has to wear her history. And I thought that was such a kind of interesting line that I guess goes through all the pieces that you've picked about embodying history in a way. Yeah, that's such a great point because where else can we wear it? <laughs> yeah. Um, we think we, we have it all fixed in our heads but really these are visceral very physical pieces and maybe that's why i'm drawn to them shall we go to the final piece which is yes. another of yours do you want to give a bit of context first it's one of three scenes of a longer piece and the longer piece is called how you treat them as what you are and the piece that we're going to listen to is called the hitman I think we should just play it. Yeah, I don't know. In the press, they've called me the hitman. Uh, sometimes the peacock assassin, pet killer, and stuff like that. But it, it's not some sort of 
thing. It's more like a management problem, you know, pest management. I like to think I'm, I'm restoring peace to a neighborhood that's been under this assault, you know. And I'm saving everyone from that devilish racket. First thing in the morning, sometimes all day long, you know, into the night. Some of the neighbors called the, the bird Mr. P, okay. So that, for me, that's like Mr. Pest, or Mr. Pariah, or Mr. Pride, right? And pride is, is like one of the seven deadly sins. So. As it were, the head of a serpent, and with a crest. The peacock hath an unsteadfast and evil shape in head. The peacock hath a simple, simple pace. And a small neck and a blue breast and a tail full of eyes. And the peacock hath found Foulest, foulest feet, so much for uh, Mr. P was not my first peacock. I won't be my last. I mean, there's always going to be someone somewhere being driven bananas by all that ruckus. And you can be sure I'll be here. I'll be here to answer that call. So much for Voice of a fiend, head of a serpent, pace of a thief. For the peacock, the peacock, hath a horrible, hath a horrible, horrible voice. Yeah, people say, oh, how can you do that? You know, it's such a sublime, beautiful bird, right? But beauty is only one part of the sublime, okay? And the other part is terror. And that's what I see in the peacock. I mean, that's a terrible bird, right? Grotesque, even. It's disgusting. Have you, have you ever looked at those feet? And a small neck and a blue breast and scary. All those eyes staring at you, you know, from the tail. You know, they got eyes. The tail side. I mean, it's like something straight out of the New World Order. You know, Illuminati, whatnot. As some journalist referred to, an apparent gunshot wound. Uh, I don't even own a gun. Uh, I don't, I've never used a gun. I made my own device for this. I don't have a patent, so I'm not going to talk about it much, but I'm telling you, it's not a gun. I was not a gunshot wound. For the peacock. The peacock. I just don't understand all the negativity. I mean, you just think about the buffalo. Now, 
there's a beautiful beast for you. And look what we did there. How many millions killed there. Or think about the wolf. I mean, that's another true beauty. We almost wiped them out. Beavers. There's another one. Yeah, Craigslist, everyone talking about the ad on Craigslist. But you know, there are plenty of other ways to find me. I have my own Facebook, I have my own Twitter feed, you know, get the word out. Like I say, there's, there's always someone wanting to get back their piece of quiet. The fact is, I'm the real Mr. P. And the P is for peace. job is simple, full stop. Get rid of a wild peacock that is disrupting our lives, full, full stop. stop. If you've ever heard a peacock's call, you know it is as loud as a car horn. Full, full stop. stop. I put in earplugs and put a pillow over my head. Full stop. Sometimes this works, sometimes not. Please contact me so we can form a strategy to eliminate this bird. Full stop. Full stop. Also, to agree on how much you will be compensated. Full stop. Full stop. For the peacock. The peacock. Had a humble. Had a humble. Humble. I don't quite know how I pulled that one off <laughs> as a collaboration. So the voice on the phone and the singing is that of radio artist Gregory Whitehead. And the story is a true one that happened in a little parkland area I lived in. And we had a wild peacock. I had just moved from there and I started getting texts from my former neighbors telling me what happened to this bird. And we loved this bird. Yes, he was noisy. All of the sounds that you hear are the sounds of him, the peacock that I recorded over years time, because he sounds like a cat. That's um, the thing with peacocks. They do sound like cats, yeah, don't they? <laughs> they? They sound like cats, but so loud and screeching. And the hubris, not only of this person putting an ad on Craigslist to find a shooter, not being brave enough to do it himself. So Gregory and I started talking about this experience and decided we would collaborate. And I just gave him a little bit of information 
and he came back with those voices. <laughs> it just came together. The recognition that a peacock, even in the 13th century, out of a bestiary that Gregory found somewhere, he just put that to music and imagined the voice of this person. I listened to it before I read anything and I kind of took it as a semi-work of fiction but also as a kind of metaphor. So maybe I read way too much into what I was hearing and kind of, I don't know, almost juxtapose maybe a person as Mr P being someone that is vain and loud and that we might want to get rid of so yeah but actually it was about this peacock rather than uh, using the peacock as a device i actually love your idea that uh the experience was so like otherworldly you know i I spoke to the neighbor who found the bird Um, it had landed on the roof of her house and then fell into her yard and imagine the size of these birds they're enormous So in that enormity is kind of poetry and is kind of fiction. And none of us could believe that this guy did it, that he had the temerity, the hubris to pull something off like that. I mean, obviously there's somebody out there who did the dirty work, according to him, but we're never going to know. Joan, thank you so much for sharing some of your work and these pieces that were part of this hubris, humility online audio exhibition that you curated what's your next online exhibition that you're working on oh my goodness well um right in the midst of this series called story is dot 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 and the ellipses is very intentional since we don't really know and i gathered up other curators had not done that before and that was extraordinarily fun and productive and each of them chose a sound artist working around the idea of stories and narrative and exploring the scaffolding of stories and then how we climb up those scaffolds and make adjustments as we go and so there's a total of four curators including myself and their monthly exhibits so really short one is archived from december Uh, One is ongoing right now in January, and there are two more that will roll out at the beginning of February and March. And I think the serendipity of who decided to jump in and curate and what artists they decided to present is just delightful. So you can just go to earlid.org and you'll find all of the ones that are archived and the ones that are happening or coming up. For more radio, podcasts and sound art discoveries, head to xmtr.fm, a curated sonic storytelling platform made for independent makers, shakers and audio craftspeople. I'll be back with more sound discoveries in February. In the meantime, happy listening.